Chapter 25 of The Life and Ventures of the Original John Jacob Astor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life and Ventures of the Original John Jacob Astor by Elizabeth L. Gebhardt. Chapter 25 Landlord and Airlord. When John Jacob Astor, as a young immigrant, first became familiar with the streets of New York. One old writer described it as a snug, leafy town of 25,000 inhabitants. These had settled, for the most part, below Cortland Street. By 1800, the city had more than doubled its population and had grown a mile up the island. The successful fur dealer of keen brain and clear vision felt assured that this doubling of population and covering of space would repeat itself and, acting on this suspicion, began to buy real estate. He had no interest in dwelling houses or business places, but sought farmland, which often caused his friends to banter him on throwing away money on pasture land, so far from the compact part of town. The haystacks of the bay yards stood on a broad sweep of land, which is now Lower Broadway. But they were glad to sacrifice good crops for what seemed to them greater profits in the shape of 200 or $300 a lot from John Jacob Astor. John Semlar and his wife sold their east side farm and rope walk for $20,000, and most of the vast Astor property on the east side today is built upon the Semlar meadows and cornfields. Not all of the property Mr. Astor bought was well-cultivated land. Much of it was marsh and rock, and the sellers of those days considered themselves fortunate in getting a fair price for ground which must of necessity prove unproductive. It was a rich opportunity, a real estate boom, in which those willing to exchange farm or occupation hastened to offer their land for sale. Mr. Astor's best friends pleaded with him not to risk a fortune already won in a venture whose success depended on the growth of a city whose popularity might at any day turn into some new channel. Their advice was in vain. The man who had reckoned chances overseas and across continents trusted his own acute judgment in this nearer venture. Property that seemed to onlookers worth retaining, Mr. Astor parted with. In one instance, he sold a Wall Street house for $8,000. After the papers were signed, the purchaser seemed inclined to congratulate himself over his bargain at the seller's expense. Why, Mr. Astor, he said, in a few years this lot will bring half again its present value. Very true, replied the financier. But now you shall see what I will do with the money. With $8,000, I will buy 80 lots above Canal Street. By the time your lot is worth $12,000, my lots will be worth $80,000. This prediction was in the end fulfilled. A portion of Governor Clinton's Greenwich Country Place was acquired by the great land buyer and is now covered by wholesale buildings. Medcalf Eden and John Cosine both inherited broad acres of farmland the former in 1797, the latter in 1809. The Eden Farm extended on the old Bloomingdale Road, now East Broadway, from 42nd to 46th Street, stretching in a diagonal line northwestward to the Hudson River. The air of this valuable estate seemed to have fritted away, and Mr. Astor, improving his opportunity, purchased it. The charming old Eden homestead, with gambrel roof, 
wide porch and deep chimney shadowed by great trees did not suggest city streets neither did the broad hospitable carriage road broadened with great elms that led to it or the sun-kissed pond reflecting the tender greens of spring or the rich autumn hues in its quiet depths city streets through the eden farm only john jacob astor could see them as soon have expected them through in the first garden that went by his name mr astor continued to buy farms the cosine farm came into his hands through the chancery courts and extended from fifty-third to fifty-seven streets on broadway and westward again to the hudson river john jacob astor was fast acquiring land along the riverfront and backwards equal to that of the great manors further north the land however was not to be portioned out in leases to small farmers as that of the manors but was to be squared off into city streets which his purchasers saw in its dream john jacob astor always believed in the supreme destiny of new york and he himself gave it a mighty impetus towards that destiny two great astor hotels stand on the old bloomingdale road today and westward hundreds of dwellings occupy the old eden farm and hundreds more have been erected on the farm of john cosine trinity corporation was land poor in mr astor's time and many a sale of lots on the church farm were made to mr astor enabling them to meet current expenses pay salaries build parish schools and care for their poor one of trinity's ninety-nine year leases covering a third of its great farm was held by aaron burr richmond hill was famous in those days with the silver-tongued burr as host and his brilliant daughter theodosia as a charming hostess this place itself was picturesque with wide stretches of land including wild swamps rocky ledges and barren commons lying all the way from canal street on to bloomingdale but aaron burr lived recklessly and extravagantly and between heavy mortgages and his quarrel with hamilton ruin stared him in the face the city was moving up towards richmond hill and john jacob astor bought the place for one hundred and sixty thousand dollars thus smoothing for a time the roughness of aaron burr's checkered career worthless as the purchase seemed at the time it was one of mr astor's most valuable investments these acquisitions were made with such judgment as frequently to be sold after a few years at double or triple the original price the idea that the great land buyer never parted with his purchases is contradicted by the estate books which record the sales of many plots of land during the buyer's lifetime and still more by his descendants during the remainder of the century that this was a species of farming that paid and was proved many times over during the succeeding years mr astor's land speculations were not confined entirely to the prospective city of new york for through one of his operations he acquired the legal title to one-third of putnam county new york state this large tract of land belonged to the estate of roger and mary morris who having remained loyal to great britain during the revolutionary war forfeited their right to the property they fled to england at the close of the war and the state sold their land to loyal american farmers but it appeared that the original owners had only a life interest in the estate that the property really belonged to their heirs with all their houses barns and other improvements that had been made naturally the heirs felt that they had some claim which the state was bound to recognize and after a thorough examination of the papers concerned by the best legal talent of the day john jacob astor bought the rights of the heirs in eighteen o nine for one hundred thousand dollars
Roger Morris was dead, and Mary, his wife, was aged and infirm, and it was not until 1815 that Mr. Astor pressed his claim. The farmers living upon the land were aghast. The estate covered 51,102 acres, divided among 700 families who were relying on the titles given to them by New York State. Commissioners were appointed by the legislator to look into the matter, and finding Mr. Astor's claim a wholly legal one, asked for what sum he would compromise. The value of the land was estimated at $667,000, and Mr. Astor offered to sell his claim for half that sum, but his offer was not accepted. The case lingered through several years, being brought up again in 1819, when Mr. Astor repeated his previous offering with interest added, and again no agreement was reached. Meanwhile, the lives of farmers and townspeople, with their fear of ejectment from what they had every reason to consider, their own property with a clear title was not enviable. It was not until 1827 that a test case was tried, in which Daniel Webster and Martin Van Buren stood for the state, and Emmett and Ogden, and probably Aaron Burr, though he did not appear in the trial for Mr. Astor. Daniel Webster used all of his customary eloquence in his client's behalf, but it is said that one sentence of the opposing counsel, Mr. Astor bought this property, confided in the justice of the state of New York, firmly believing that in the litigation of his claim, his rights would be maintained, practically determined the case. The legislature finally agreed to Mr. Astor's own terms, and he received about half a million dollars from the state. The present owners were secured in their titles, and peace settled over a large community. John Jacob Astor showed faith in New York as no man had ever done before. He discounted its future as he bought lots, either far north beyond the city limits, or on the east or west sides, where scattered cottages set down in the middle of lots, did not suggest future orderly and well-built streets. Mr. Astor's own faith in the city's future went a long way towards ensuring that future. The judgment of the shrewdest businessman of his day drew others after it, and they, in turn, were emboldened to embark upon ventures that depended for their success upon the city's growth. Capital from Europe sought investment in New York, and men from all over the United States were drawn to the rising town. Year by year, this air of confidence increased, until about 1825, when New York began to take on her metropolitan aspect and exert an influence abroad as well as at home an influence which had gathered strength with each passing year. At this time, Mr. Astor was a multimillionaire, and an interest in his ventures and successes attracted the whole world. It had been said that if the great fortune had been acquired in Europe, it would have doubtlessly been utilized in founding a family building, grand mansions, laying out miles of beautiful grounds, possibly buying a title. But here in America, it's mere business to use benefited the people. As New York grew, there was nothing she needed so much as houses, comfortable homes with the means of ordinary people. John Jacob Astor built houses as well as bought land, built them well, and fitted them out with improvements of the day, kept them in good condition, and asked fair rents. In the rapid growth of the city, there was an opportunity to impoverish the working man in those immoderate circumstances, through the imposition of exorbitant rents but the great landlord's course controlled the situation, and the city and its citizens profited thereby. Notwithstanding the extent and success of Mr. Astor's other businesses, 
the increased value of his real estate operations was the largest factor in the accumulation of his immense fortune. He is said to have purchased land almost with a gift of prophecy. Though this great German-American financier did not follow his mother country in using his wealth to build up a great family estate, he did import from the old world the idea of leasing land. The larger part of his vast possessions were neither sold again nor used personally for building purposes, but leased for periods of 20 years. The leases, after paying a reasonable land rent, being expected to build houses, make improvements, and pay taxes at his own expense. A satisfactory tenant could generally renew his lease, and so continue in possession of home or business. The system was never popular in the New World, either as an exercise between landlord and tenants in cities, or between the lords of the manors and the farmers on the great estates in the country. In the latter case, it led to the anti-rent war. John Jacob Astor, however, was not called upon to meet a war of his tenants. He simply allowed his land to lay idle, until some tenants, forced by its favorable location to rent it for business purposes, set aside his prejudice and paid their unasked. Renewing the lease at the end of 21 years, or leaving the dwellings and other improvements to add to the value of the great landlord's estate. Some of John Jacob Astor's descendants have improved on his old system of leases, and when a lease expires, offered the land with the buildings and the leases at a reasonable terms, before attempting to sell to others. John Jacob Astor and his son William B. occupied for years the same office, a little one-story building on Prince Street, just east of Broadway. Here, both gave most careful attention to the mammoth business of which they were proprietors. William B. early became a partner with his father in the fur business, and of real estate was said to have been even a better judge than the elder Astor. The Thompson farm, the most valuable of the Astor purchases, extended east and west of Fifth Avenue from 32nd to 36th Streets, and upon which the Waldorf Astoria now stands, was William B. Astor's purchase. The elder Astor invested two millions in real estate. At his death, the value of his property of this class was said to be 20 millions. Yet this market accretion in value was not due to the great landlord's efforts. He simply bought his land in what seemed to him the prospective line of advancement of the city, then he gave the town time to grow. The city fathers eventually laid out the streets through his farms and occasionally added parks. When DeWitt Clinton, through his project of the Erie Canal, diverted the enormous trade of the West to New York, and with the business increased the population by hundreds of thousands, one of John Jacob Astor's dreams of New York's future came true. Homes on Astor land were a necessity in order to house the incoming multitudes. Railroads and steamships and immigration all made larger and more frequent calls upon it, and the farmlands rapidly became city streets. Grassy meadows that had only been worth hundreds in the hands of their original owners grew to the value of thousands in the ownership of the great landlord. Hills where boys had flown kites were leveled with the ground. Stretches of land where ball games had flourished became city blocks. Rippling streams, which the old-time kissing bridges had spanned, and whose transparent depths had mirrored many a love scene, were filled with earth and made the path of many feet. So the city grew, always along the surface of the ground, which John Jacob Astor had bought by foot and rod, but stored away in Mr. Astor's tangible possessions and unsuspected in his realistic dreams was an inheritance he never guessed. The projectors of the elevated road and the subway carried the city in great strides to up and through John Jacob Astor's farmlands. 
and one morning after the elevators had been proven a success, the old landlord's heirs awoke to find themselves lords of acres in the air. In 1830, John Jacob Astor was the only man in New York worth a million dollars. In 1900, the Astor estate had risen in value to considerably over $200 million. End of chapter 25